My name is Trevor Thrall. I'm a senior fellow here at Cato and uh, an associate professor in the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. Um, to everybody here with us physically in the auditorium and to everyone online, um, we're very glad to have you with us today. Uh, before we get going, let me just review some logistics. Uh, this panel is going to go until 3.30, uh, at which point we'll have a 10-minute sort of passing time uh, for you to take care of things. And then the three breakout panels will be upstairs uh, and start at 3.40 and go till 5 o'clock, at which point I hope you can join us back downstairs here in the Winter Garden uh, for happy hour, where, as promised, uh, you will be able to enjoy one of our two signature cocktails, finger on the button, or, if you're not drinking, hashtag fake booze. Uh, Okay, logistics out of the way. Let's talk about Trump. Um, I know a lot of people, I, I know this from talking to people who don't live in D.C., a lot of people in the country are suffering from Trump fatigue. Uh, it sounds like uh, sometimes we do nothing but talk about Trump. I'm, I'm not sure there's ever been a president that's gotten more conversation than, than Trump. Um, but I think the fact that so many people are here today um, tells you something about how important this conversation is at this point in our history. Uh, it seems to me that the country is a bit on edge, not only thanks to various domestic political issues, but also as a result of debate and some discontent about America's engagement with the world. When Trump was a candidate, uh, a lot of people point out that his America First rhetoric was an unprecedented break from the last 70 years of American foreign policy. Um, some people, including his opponent, warned that Trump was ill-prepared uh, and temperamentally ill-suited to be the commander-in-chief. Um, others, on the other hand, argue that Trump's timing was perfect. People are tired of business as usual, both here and abroad. And that while Trump's approach might be unorthodox, it was his very unorthodox approach that would breathe fresh air into stale debates about U.S. foreign policy. A year ago, we actually assembled here to have the early version of this conversation, to debate what the Trump doctrine would be as it went from rhetoric into policy. Uh, it was a little early, uh, so we made some predictions. Uh, but at this point, a year into his presidency, we have some data. And we can start, I think, saying um, somewhat more reasonably certain things about what the Trump doctrine is and what America First means for the United States. Um, our answers will still be provisional. We have at least three years left. Um, but we'll see how we can do. I'm especially excited for our discussions today because we have such a fantastic group of people joining us uh, in addition to the panel here, many other great speakers at our panels later. Each of the panels will focus on a different aspect of Trump's foreign policy. We have a Middle East panel, nuclear weapons panel, and a sort of a national security making process panel. Uh, the general format will be the same. I'm going to ask each of our panelists, and I will also take five or ten minutes to just offer some opening remarks and provocations, and then we'll throw it back to you guys for questions and discussion. The mission of our first panel here is to take a 35,000-foot view of Trump's foreign policy. What is the Trump doctrine? What does America first mean? Uh, where is it going? And then um, we'll let you guys uh, sort of guide the discussion after that. Um, joining me today for this first panel are four very distinguished experts. Uh, Hal Brands is the Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced uh, International Studies, and a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He is the author, most recently and not coincidentally, of American Grand Strategy in the Age of Trump. Kathleen Hicks 
is Senior Vice President and the Henry A. Kissinger, do you notice a pattern here, uh, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where she is the Director of the International Security Program. Dr. Hicks served in the Obama administration as Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Strategy, Plans, and Forces. She led the development of the 2012 Defense Strategic Guidance and the 2010 Quadrennial Defense Review. James Goldgar is Visiting Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he is a professor of international relations at American University, where he served as the dean of the School of International Service from 2011 through 2017. I also want to note that he serves as the co-director of an important initiative called Bridging the Gap, a program that trains PhD students and faculty to produce policy-relevant academic research and conduct theoretically grounded policy work. And finally, Susan Glasser, Chief International Affairs Columnist at Politico, host of the wonderful Global Politico podcast, as well as the former editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy Magazine, not to mention too many other wonderful things to, to mention in a short amount of time. So we'll, we'll go in the order I introduced them, and um, let's have at it. Hal? All right. Well, thanks, Trevor, and, and thanks, everybody, for sharing some time with us today. So uh, as Trevor mentioned, we're asked to speak for five to ten minutes, so I'm going to quickly run through uh, five points about Trump's foreign policy, about the Trump doctrine, as it may be. Uh, and the first point is that just as a general proposition, uh, a year in, we can see that a number of Trump's policies have been less radical than one might have expected in November 2016. So there have been departures. Some of them have been quite significant. I think many of them have been quite damaging. But if you just made a list of campaign pledges related to foreign policy that Trump made in the course of the campaign, you would find that far more of them are unfulfilled. Uh, than fulfilled. So there's been no diplomatic rapprochement with Russia, no 45% tariffs on China, uh, no withdrawal from NAFTA yet. Uh, the president hasn't shredded the North Atlantic Treaty or withdrawn troops from Europe. He hasn't withdrawn from the Iran deal, and, and so on and so forth. So the first thing to note is that Trump hasn't simply blown up U.S. foreign policy in, in the way that his rhetoric might have led one to expect. Uh, and in fact, there have been a number of policy issues. So Afghanistan, for instance, uh, whereas policy is probably what any mainstream GOP president uh, would have pursued. And so, so there's been more normality at the level of concrete policies than one might have uh, imagined. Uh, and this is, leads to a second point, which is that this is because U.S. foreign policy is simply stickier than I think Trump probably imagined. So uh, in most cases, Trump hasn't stuck with policies he inherited because he's become persuaded of the wisdom of those policies. He, he still thinks NAFTA is a terrible deal. Uh, he still thinks we ought to be cooperating with Russia. He still thinks that the Iran agreement is the worst deal ever, uh, and so on. And in fact, he actually has tried to change policy uh, on a number of these issues, from, from Russia sanctions to, to torture and other things. Uh, what has happened, though, is that he has discovered that uh, the obstacles to changing policy are more significant uh, than he thought. And so there's been reporting to the effect that the administration did draft an executive order that was going to take a look at bringing back torture and black sites, but it was blocked by opposition from within the administration. Uh, the administration tried to lift sanctions on Russia early on, but it was stymied by opposition, first from within the administration and then uh, from, from Capitol Hill. Uh, the president was all set to withdraw from NAFTA, but then was dissuaded from doing so by uh, Republicans on the Hill and by people like Wilbur Ross. So he wanted to withdraw from the Iran deal, but was apparently talked off that ledge, at least temporarily, uh, by his advisors. Uh, and so across an array of issues, the president has just run into uh, a great deal of resistance from advisors, from Congress, uh, from the courts in some cases, or, or simply from international reality. Uh, and if you add that to the fact that there is 
uh, basically seven decades of historical inertia in U.S. foreign policy, the fact that, uh, and the fact that our alliances and the international trade system are so deeply institutionalized after all this time. And if you further add to that the fact that Trump himself uh, is just a weak president, both within his administration uh, and within the broader American uh, political environment, uh, it means that radical change has, has proven hard to accomplish. Uh, but that brings me to my third point, which is that there are still some areas where Trump has meaningfully shifted U.S. policy, uh, and mostly in a destructive way. Uh, and in a number of cases, this involves concrete policy changes. So uh, withdrawing from TPP, for instance, I think constituted a major blow to any effort to compete geopolitically or geoeconomically uh, in the Asia-Pacific. Uh, but in an even larger number of cases, I think it has more to do with the ideas and the rhetoric and, and the atmospheric surrounding U.S. foreign policy. Uh, be, because all those things matter when they come from the President of the United States. Uh, and the unmistakable message that Trump has sent during his presidency, as during the campaign, uh, is that he thinks that the international order that we constructed is a bum deal for us. Uh, and so he's systematically set about undermining what you might think of as, as the intangibles or the ideas uh, or the traditions that in many cases have made U.S. policy so effective over the decades. Uh, and I would include here uh, the idea that, that America stands for something beyond its own naked self-interest, that, that we uh, pursue a positive sum rather than a zero-sum vision of international order, uh, the idea that we are a reliable ally that has relationships of, of deep and enduring uh, affection and cooperation with our closest partners, uh, the idea that we are the world's primary advocate uh, for, for the promotion of democracy and human rights. Uh, the idea that the United States can be counted on to take the lead in addressing the world's uh, most critical problems. Uh, the idea that we are diplomatically competent and the idea that we'll serve as a source of stability in a dangerous world. Uh, and I think all of these attributes uh, have occasionally been violated from time to time, but they've all been broadly critical to U.S. policy over the years. Uh, and Trump has been, been sort of hacking away at them in ways that, that are probably so obvious and well-known that I don't need to go into a great deal of, of detail on them. Uh, and, and I think as Susan's reporting has shown, this is something that's happening not just in public, but, but in private, uh, in Trump's meetings with foreign leaders uh, as well. And so the way I like to phrase it is that Trump hasn't blown up U.S. foreign policy, but there's certainly a slow bleed uh, going on. Uh, and this leads to uh, a fourth point which is that uh, even where Trump's preferences haven't prevailed, even where sort of the, the America First agenda he wrote in on uh, has not prevailed, there has opened up uh, a, a world of difference, really an unprecedented gap between the president and his own administration and between his, the president and his own policies uh, on a variety of issues. Uh, so look at Russia, for instance. If you take the president out of the equation, the Trump administration is actually following a relatively tough policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia. It's increased... Uh, spending on European deterrence and reassurance. Uh, uh, there are more uh, aggressive sanctions in place today than there were a year ago. The administration has announced that it's going to sell lethal weaponry to the Ukrainians. Uh, and yet Trump is still chasing the dream uh, of a partnership with, with Putin. Uh, if you look at human rights, the Treasury Department just unveiled and used uh, some rather aggressive global Magnitsky sanctions just before Christmas. Uh, but Trump clearly has no interest uh, in, in human rights, and, and he spends his foreign trips... Uh, getting along much better with authoritarians than he does with Democrats. Uh, or a third example, look at the national security strategy. Uh, it, it is a relatively mainstream, if hard-edged document. Uh, it's committed to the post-war tradition. Uh, it clearly distinguishes between who our allies are and who our adversaries are. 
It even talks about the role of American values in US foreign policy, which is something that Trump has been reluctant to do. But the same day that the document was released, Trump gave a speech that was really sort of a full-throated defense of the America First agenda. He talked about how our allies are the worst offenders in terms of exploiting our, large, our largesse, uh, how they are our primary competitors when it comes to trade, and how we're really looking forward to all the good things we're going to do uh, with Russia, uh, and so on. And so there's a great deal of daylight between the president and his own policies. Uh, and in some ways, that daylight is reassuring. I think it's, it's better than the alternative, which would be sort of a, a full-on implementation of the America First agenda. Uh, but it's also destabilizing uh, because it creates uh, a lot of uncertainty, both here and overseas, as to what U.S. policy is. Uh, it means that people have to guess how we might behave uh, in a crisis. Uh, and it means that there is likely to be a continuing tug-of-war uh, between the mainstream uh, and the more nationalist elements of this administration's uh, statecraft. Uh, and in fact, I, I think this, this tug of war, when you combine it with all of the chaos and in many cases the simple incompetence that has characterized this administration, actually makes it kind of hard to identify a Trump doctrine. Uh, or to put it differently, I, I think to the extent that there is a Trump doctrine that's emerged, uh, it's basically an awkward, uh, unstable, and frequently incoherent blend of traditional and more narrowly nationalistic uh, approaches. So in an article um, uh, that I wrote with a friend, Colin Call, back when the administration launched, we basically made the argument that Trump does have a coherent worldview, but that his policies are likely to be a conflicted mess for all of the reasons that I talked about. And I think that's basically uh, what has happened to date. Uh, and this instability, this issue of instability brings me to my fifth and final point, uh, which is that uh, for all of the commentary about how uh, quasi-normal Trump's policies have been in some cases, I think there are a number of issues where it, it's possible that the blow-up simply may not have happened yet. Uh, and that's because this president ha has had a tendency uh, to, to make some irresponsible campaign pledge or promise, uh, then be convinced uh, that fully following through would be disastrous. Uh, and so the outcome is that the administration takes half measures or, or it kicks the can down a road a bit or, or demands that other parties make concessions lest we do something really catastrophically uh, counterproductive. And so this is the approach that the administration has taken with the Iran deal, uh, with the continued threats to terminate NAFTA uh, if a much better deal is not struck, uh, and, and even to some degree uh, with North Korea. Uh, and again, this is probably better than, than an alternative uh, reality in which Trump simply withdraws from NAFTA, for instance. But, but I think the trouble is that in doing this, Trump has basically created a series of ticking time bombs that could conceivably explode in, in 2018 because that's when the road is going to run out uh, on a lot of these cans. And it's going to be just as the president starts feeling the pressure to deliver uh, on some of his campaign promises before the midterm. So if the NAFTA renegotiations deadlock, for instance, uh, if the effort to fix the Iran deal proves unavailing, then I think Trump is going to face the choice of either escalating or admitting that he was simply blowing hot air all, all along. Uh, and, and whether this will happen or not, I, I don't know. It's possible that face-saving compromises will be found in some of these issues. But nonetheless, I think there is the distinct possibility that uh, because of this dynamic, uh, as tumultuous as 2017 was, 2018 could be even more turbulent. Uh, and whether you uh, are sort of an advocate of restraint or an advocate of primacy, I, I think that is a sobering prospect. Uh, well, I agree with everything that Hal just said. So I will try to just focus on some wave top issues and then maybe talk a little bit specifically about defense, um, just so it, we make sure it gets into the mix in the conversation. Um, I was here a year ago, roughly a year ago, for this conference. And I think the one thing I, 
I would say right off the bat is there is nothing I have learned in the last year that contradicts what we all knew, frankly, not just me personally, but we, the electorate, uh, know about Donald Trump and his approach to foreign policy. Um, and I likened it last year. I would liken it, liken it again to uh, a riff on a movie title, which is Our Brand is Chaos. And we have seen that. We knew it going in. He was very clear that he believed in unpredictability as a, um, a theme of how he manages both in his business life and how he would manage as president. And of course, everything in the last year really has borne that out. Um, it's a philosophical approach that he has. Um, I don't know the extent to which he thinks it's working. I think he probably thinks it's working well. But I think for most people who look at foreign policy, it's not working particularly well for all the reasons that Hal just underlined. I think the one like uh, underscoring point here to make about why it's not working is uh, I would liken it to looking at the United States as a teenager, that you have to say to them, you know, don't forget the world doesn't revolve around you. We have con been conditioned for 70 years to understand that the world revolves around us, and particularly since the end of the Cold War. But there are plenty of other actors in the international environment. Some of them are friendly, some of them friendly or not friendly, some of them very unfriendly, state, non-state. And those actors aren't stuck in the vortex of uncertainty and chaos that we're in. Some feel they are because they're allies, but they're going to find their own orbits, if you will. Um, and others are very happy that we're consumed with our own um, neuroses internally, domestically, not just the president himself, but of course, long-standing political divisions in the United States that are making it difficult for us to progress. I think that's what's really happening here. You see in the Trump presidency and in the Trump doctrine of chaos an acceleration, a very significant acceleration of the loss of US um, agency and power in that system. And it's not because our economy isn't strong, and it's not necessarily because our military isn't strong. Um, it's because through a mix of our own internal problems and the ability of others to move forward opportunistically and our either uh, lack of interest in or unwillingness to check that appropriately, uh, you know, the system is changing uh, as we move forward. A um, couple things I would just point to in terms of the, how the chaos manifests, if you will. It, it manifests internally, I think, for the president in how he thinks about foreign policy. I actually, if there's one thing I probably don't agree 100% on, I don't think I would say he has a coherent viewpoint on U.S. foreign policy. I think he has strong instincts. Um, sometimes those instincts fight against each other to come out at, in different contexts to different points um, of solution. But that internal struggle in his own mind is then compounded by the struggle, as Hal pointed out, between members of his cabinet and him, between members of his cabinet and each other, between the Congress um, and the administration in some cases. Um, and maybe a great example of that, which I'll talk about more when I get into defense, is what we see on budget, right, which is just plain revenue and spending. We can't, as a country, come to any resolution. We're in a continuing resolution right now, but we've been through a shutdown already. We'll see if there's another one coming. These include Donald Trump as the president who has a role in helping us resolve these issues, which he is not doing. But they also are compounded by our own sense of chaos politically. Um, and then I would just say, in terms of the American electorate, this tension on foreign policy 
of uh, putting it extremely simplistically between isolationism and internationalism, which I believe peaked around the time of the 2016 election and has started to soften back into more of a normal state of Americans, generally speaking, being very um, pro-internationalism. Um, that is not the same, I rush to add, as pro-use of force or significant military or economic engagements. But you have that struggle sort of playing out. So there's layers of chaos, and the president sort of accelerates all those through his own personal philosophy of how to manage. I think you also see in um, the administration a real lack of big successes, um, big wins. You do have um, some examples of where they have been checked on things they sought to make big initiatives. I think the Muslim ban um, is probably the most obvious case early on where there was a push to do something really radical. And then most of the other initiatives are, in a way, the ban is like this too, are really about pulling out of things. They're about reversing things. They're not about doing new things. So whether it's pulling out of the Paris Accord, whether it's TPP, whether it's what may happen on NAFTA, it's about undoing things rather than big new initiatives. So if you look at things like Afghanistan policy, Syria policy, Russia policy writ large with some significant exceptions, and even China policy, there is a lot of continuity that has built over prior administrations, Republican and Democratic, that you see playing out. Um, that's probably the best case for those of us like me who are internationalists. I'd rather have that stasis than a significant initiative that reverses that course. But as I said before, our stasis while others are moving forward is not a net positive for the United States. Just quickly on defense specifically, after the national security strategy came out, there was also a national defense strategy that came out. Whereas I think people um, rightly question uh, whether the national security strategy reflects a particularly strong input or viewpoint from the president, although it certainly uses a lot of the terminology that he's comfortable with. There is really no such debate about the national defense strategy and the Secretary of Defense. I think everyone who reads it sees and saw the Secretary of Defense roll out in a press availability his strategy, knows it's his. And that's very meaningful in terms of the degree to which it's likely to be uh, followed up with actual action in, inside the Defense Department and the way in which, importantly, allies and partners view the document. Allies are, in fact, a key theme in the national defense strategy. Secretary Mattis has always uh, come across, at, both in his current position and in prior positions, as a reassuring element for allies and partners that the United States believes in an internationalist role. It believes in the strength of alliances for supporting global stability. That's actually a, a quote from the document. Um, and so that's had a very reassuring effect, I think, in the defense sector. And the other thing that's notable about the national defense strategy is it focuses in particular on China and Russia. Again, that is in large part a continuation of trends, bipartisan trends in defense policy thinking. Um, and uh, it will be interesting to see how those are actioned upon. But the biggest issue on defense really is the degree to which we can resource that. And I get back to the point I raised earlier about our inability at a national level to come to resolution on revenue and spending and how defense sits alongside other discretionary programs inside that um, question mark that is unresolved. So here we are in defense, nine years of continuing resolutions and no real clarity on where we're going. You have a new strategy that's come out. You have a new 
president, new secretary of defense. Um, they may have a worldview about how they want to expand the military, in particular, Trump as a candidate had very expansive views about how to grow the military. Um, and it's not clear we're going to get the kind of resources needed to fulfill that vision, even if the secretary himself has personally taken time and attention to get the strategy where he wants it. So that's the big question mark going into 2018 in the defense world, is how will the ends desired in the defense strategy line up with the means of the nation to support it? Great. Well, thanks. Thanks for including me. And um, I wanted to uh, focus on an aspect of Trump's departure from his four previous uh, post-Cold War predecessors, uh, as well as something that I think is often missed when we talk about U.S. support for liberal international order uh, to sort of set the stage for looking forward to the second year. And I'm actually going to dwell mainly on actually uh, the history pre-Trump uh, in order to, to remind you of in my view, of really how different he is, even if there's still continuity, even if he hasn't totally blown it up, uh, and, uh, and, and, and in a critical part. And that is, so there was a recognition from George H.W. Bush through Barack Obama that some version of isolationism and or hard nationalism had very strong support among certain segments of the American population. And those four presidents sought to either push back against those attitudes, to sideline those attitudes, to co-opt those attitudes at certain times in order to continue the trajectory of post-World War II U.S. foreign policy. And the difference is that, uh, you know, those forces are there, but instead of having a president pushing against them, we have a president who seeks to represent them, stir them up, uh, embolden them, uh, and, um, and, and, and really make them part of... of the U.S. foreign policy approach in the way that they were not uh, previously. With respect to a liberal international order, there's been a lot of conversation in the last year that, hey, you know, it was never really that liberal, uh, it was never really that international, and it was never really that much of an order. And uh, whatever parts of those things are true, I think that misses uh, a fundamental point. And that was, why did that thing come about? What, what was the goal in creating uh, what we ended up calling the liberal international order, it was to mitigate two important features of the pre-World War II period that were seen as causing the Great Depression and the Second World War, protectionism and virulent nationalism. Uh, and the United States, in, after the war, was not designing institutions for the Cold War. It was designing institutions to prevent what had, create, what had led to World War II. It then, with the cold, onset of the Cold War, adapted uh, that order uh, to uh, the Cold War system. Uh, and, of course, during the Cold War, those forces of isolationism and nationalism didn't disappear, but they really emerged uh, after 1989. And I just want to recount a little bit of that uh, as we think then about Donald Trump. 1992, Pat Buchanan spooked George H.W. Bush, taking 37% of the vote in the New Hampshire primary. Uh, calling for, quote, a new nationalism, a new patriotism, a new foreign policy that puts America first, uh, and not only first, but second and third as well, contrasting significantly with uh, George H.W. Bush's call for a new world order uh, during the, uh, the Gulf crisis and Gulf War. Um, 1992, of course, Bill Clinton defeated not only George H.W. Bush, who stopped talking about foreign policy because he was 
he was spooked by the Buchanan, um, uh, by, by what Buchanan had been doing. Uh, but also remember who, who Bill Clinton also defeated, and that was Ross Perot, who, had, who won 19% of the popular vote as a third-party candidate. And while Clinton's uh, slogan during the campaign was, it's the economy stupid, uh, he uh, embraced globalization uh, as, uh, as his strategy, uh, passing NAFTA in his first year, uh, which at, then at, the at the time was seen by a great deal, as a great deal by both Republicans, actually more by Republicans than by Democrats. Uh, and then, you know, through the course of his presidency to the end of his presidency, uh, launching the World Trade Organization. Also at the time, uh, it was seen as a great thing that China uh, was, was in the um, World Trade Organization. Clinton's big political challenge, 1994, the Republican takeover of both houses of Congress for the first time uh, in four decades on the contract with America. Uh, of the 10 planks of the contract, one, uh, the sixth, was devoted to national security. It focused on ensuring that no U.S. troops would serve under United Nations command. I mean, it wasn't even a real thing, uh, but it was uh, in the contract. And res the restoration of the essential parts of our national security funding. Many of the new members who won in 1994 were proud to declare they didn't own passports, right? Why would you need to go anywhere but the greatest country on earth? Uh, and even though Newt Gingrich, who led them, was an internationalist, that caucus was not. Uh, and um, uh, Gingrich's co uh, former Republican colleague, Vin Weber, then Republican colleague, Vin Weber, uh, said later, uh, there was a lot more Buchanan in those people than there was Ronald Reagan. Clinton in 1996 uses the phrase indispensable nation at the Democratic National Convention. The goal was to try to convince the American population that it was important for the United States to stay engaged in the world. The message was to the domestic audience. And he never really felt like he had done that. In his last uh, foreign policy speech as president in December of 2000, by the way, the election results, of course, were still in doubt at that time, uh, Clinton said, uh, people say I'm a pretty good talker, but I still don't think I've persuaded the American people by big majorities that you really ought to care a lot about foreign policy, about our relationship to the rest of the world, about what we're doing. In the 2000 presidential campaign, Al Gore was the interventionist hawk, arguing for an expansive view of the world against his main Democratic primary challenger, Bill Bradley, as well as his Republican opponent, George W. Bush who, as you may recall from 2000, argued that the United States needed to be more humble and, not, and quote, not go around the world saying, we do it this way, so should you. 9-11, um, policy becomes much more interventionist. Uh, and it, by the second inaugural, he was announcing that it was America's goal to end tyranny in our world, suggesting that, in fact, we did believe others should do it our way. Trade, Bush, like Clinton, like his father, very much... Uh, a, a typical free trader. Economy during the 2000, given the state of the economy during the 2008 presidential campaign, all the Democrats took a highly protectionist stance. Even Hillary Clinton was opposing uh, her husband's NAFTA. Uh, Obama's foreign policy, is, as initially enunciated, was designed to retrench, but by the time he left office, he'd push forward on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, and a broader free trade agenda, and he himself was adopting the indispensable nation language. So despite all their differences, at the end of the day, all of Trump's post-Cold War, four post-Cold War predecessors, 
ended up as internationalist free traders rather than nationalist protectionists. And for Bush Sr. and Clinton, that was a more comfortable place from the start. Uh, George W., free trader throughout uh, and becomes more interventionist. Obama sought to recapture the George H.W. Bush realism, uh, but like Bush Sr., believed in U.S. leadership of international institutions. Uh, and certainly Obama on trade evolved during his time in office, uh, more in line with his post-World War II predecessors. Now, as Howe was pointing out, consistent with the views of these past four presidents are the top-level Trump national security and economic team. McMaster, Mattis, Tillerson, Cohn, Mnuchin are all in the same camp. But in, those, in previous administrations, their views would have been shared by the president. And this time, the president does have different ideas. And I, I do think, I mean, clearly, there's still some uncertainty among at least the three of us. We'll see where Susan comes out about what this will actually mean in practice during the presidency. But to abandon TPP, um, the hostility still toward uh, NAFTA, uh, the, the walking away from the Paris Accords, the continuing arguments that allies have taken advantage of the United States, hostility toward the UN, hostility toward the WTO, uh, which emerged again last week uh, in Davos. This is an approach that would easily fit with Buchanan's presidential platform in 92, as, and with the platform of the 1994 contract Republicans. Buchanan's 37% of the vote in, 92, in the 92 New Hampshire primary mirrors Trump's national approval ratings. Uh, but whereas Buchanan's level of support enabled him only to serve as a footnote to our recent history, Trump is able to make America first the uh, policy of the United States, at least the stated policy of the United States, even if there's continuity um, with respect to a particular things. And so, I, as I look out at year two, a uh, thing that I really will be looking for uh, is whether, uh, particularly on trade, uh, Trump succumbs to a more uh, traditional U.S. approach or whether he maintains this outlier status. If we look in recent days, we've seen the imposition of tariffs that are consistent with his earlier message. On NAFTA, uh, it is the case that negotiations do continue despite his threat of abandoning uh, NAFTA altogether. Um, and there was a lot made of his remarks in Davos with respect to TPP that he was perhaps opening the door uh, to U.S. participation as the other 11 uh, move on without the United States. Uh, and despite his uh, remarks at Davos, uh, so far America First has looked like America alone. Uh, this is a dramatic departure from his post-World post-World, post-Cold War uh, predecessors, as well as his, in, in general, as from the post-World War II predecessors. Uh, and I would say that, that like the contract Republicans, uh, as Vin Weber remarked, it's much more Buchanan than it is Ronald Reagan, and I do think that will have an impact over the course of four years. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, these are all uh, great remarks, and I associate myself with, with all of them, so I'm done. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I particularly think it's helpful to give us a bit of the historical context here for Trump, because that's really what I wanted to, to focus on today, which is, uh, yes, the President of the United States is a dramatic outlier. Uh, and in fact, I think the problem with having a conversation like this, as important 
as it is, is that he continues to confound our ability to talk about uh, him in ways uh, that you know he he very successfully, I think, is still uh, tripping us up over our own norms and conventions. And for example, when we have a nice, reasonable, rational foreign policy conversation about Donald Trump, you know, there's just one problem, which is that we're talking about Donald Trump. And I do think that uh, you know we still are working very hard, even after a year. Uh, understandably, but to fit him into the conventions of policy analysis. So we're here, okay, well, this policy decision wasn't that radical. This one, you know, okay, well, it looks like it's trending in this direction. Okay, but he hasn't blown up the Iran deal yet. Those are important conversations for us to be having for a variety of reasons. But if you actually want to understand the presidency of Donald Trump, they may or may not be that helpful. Um, you know, let's just start out by saying this is a man whose own Secretary of State called him a bleeping moron and has not uh, denied that himself in any way, okay? This is, this is a guy who the, the chairman of his own party of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee said that he's going to lead the world into World War III and nuclear Armageddon, folks, okay? So that doesn't necessarily mean, let's hope and knock on wood, that we're headed there tomorrow. But I say these things as, as a way of starting out by saying that we are all challenged uh, analytically and in every other way when we try to put him into our frameworks. And so, you know, a little bit of, of my goal as, as a journalist, as a columnist at the end of the year, was to try to say, well, what is it that has made Donald Trump truly exceptional? Or what are the ways that we can actually, putting aside all the rhetoric, that we can actually look and say, well, these have had either specific consequences or they're a dramatic outlier. What are the things that we know so far after one year people are going to remember a decade from now or two decades from now, right? I know it's very hard. If you're like me, you probably don't remember what happened last week <laughs> because so much happened this week. In fact, hopefully some of you are checking your Twitter feeds right now and can let us know what's happened while we've already been having this conversation. Um, so what is it in his first year that Trump has done when it comes to America's interactions with the world that truly stand out? Well. I think it's fair to say that he has interacted uh, with other world leaders, both our allies and those who are our adversaries or would-be adversaries, in ways that are truly unprecedented. Uh, Trump, at the end of the year, bragged in, in a tweet that he had met with uh, more than 100 world leaders, traveled to 13 different countries. Um, if we could debrief all of those uh, world leaders and get you know their, their frank uh, assessments of those meetings, a very, very high percentage of them would say things uh, as, as several of them have uh, uh, to me, to those that I've spoken with, uh, astonishing, shocking, unbelievable, uh, not something I ever expected to hear from the President of the United States. Uh, what they report about their private interactions, and again, these are people who are leaders of uh, America's closest allies and partners in the world. Uh, is a president who's dangerously uninformed uh, about their issues, who is capricious, self-involved, uncommitted uh, to the basic principles that we're discussing here, uh, and uh, willing to do or say almost anything. Some of them liked him, by the way. I should say that. Many of these interactions were not necessarily, it wasn't that Donald Trump tends to berate these people, but sometimes it's quite the opposite, right? He is a guy who looks for approbation. He looks... Uh, to have a positive interaction. He, he's very convinced in his own powers of persuasion. Uh, and so one of the, the dangerous calculations for those 
uh, trying to make a deal with him is that they don't know uh, which part of this is just saying what they want to hear and what, what, what's real and what's not. So, you know, again, I come back to that as my sort of takeaway number one of Donald Trump's year because it's truly exceptional. Uh, we don't know yet what the long-term consequences of that are going to be. I think it would be a mistake to discount it simply because it doesn't fit into uh, a, handy a handy checklist that can be flashed up on a screen of, you know, accomplishments in year one. Uh, meet with and alienate allies, <laughs> you know, uh, we don't know. And for many uh, of these countries, of course, it may make no fundamental difference in their relationship with the United States uh, because their countries are so attached uh, and so intertwined uh, with ours that, you know, it, the consequence of a bad personal relationship can't be quantified in any easily accessible framework. But I think you better take that away as number one. Number two, I would like to, for that reason, challenge a little bit the, the framework or the premise that there is a Trump doctrine, per se. Uh, you know, this is uh, not a guy who is going to talk about the liberal international order, his efforts to blow it up. He'll use aspects of it that are useful to him at any given moment uh, or, or not. And I think that, again, we don't really succeed whatever your political views are here in Washington, when we try to fit Donald Trump into our frameworks. And I think, in general, I'm skeptical of foreign policy doctrines. I remember when the uh, Obama White House was so excited about the success of their intervention in uh, the Civil War in Libya. Uh, you know, I remember very vividly a very senior uh, White House official uh, triumphantly uh, talking to me on the phone for about an hour about the Obama doctrine, which was going to be all premised on interventions like those in Libya. So I'm just, in general, skeptical of um, foreign policy pundits who come bearing doctrines, and especially if they're capitalized. Uh, that, to me, is a big warning <laughs> uh, to avoid them, um, and obviously in, in the case of Donald Trump. Um, it, you know, one of the things when I was reporting this, this big year-end article, uh, which we called Trump's year of living dangerously, uh, yes, it's worse than you think. In some ways, it should have been maybe the world's year of, of living dangerously. But I was, I was struck by something uh, in there uh, that a, a very senior uh, Western official said to me who had, had very high-level contacts with the Trump team, recounted in particular a conversation uh, with Jared Kushner, uh, the president's son-in-law, who, I remember a year ago, he was given an extraordinary portfolio. Uh, he was going to be making Middle East peace. He was going to be handling our relationship with China, the world's other largest economy. Oh, he was going to be fixing that problem with Mexico, uh, getting them to pay for the wall, etc., and so on, right? And in between, he then also acquired a portfolio, I believe, of reinventing all American um, uh, uh, manufacturing. But putting that aside, this, this uh, European official uh, had an early meeting with Jared Kushner, and tried to go over some of the history that, that Jim was just offering us and, and made the point of the deep and enduring ties between the United States and Western Europe, that this wasn't just uh, you know, a post-Cold War ganging up on Russia or anything like, but literally decades worth of uh, investment in these institutions. And Kushner, it was, this wasn't Donald Trump, right? This was the, the nice, sober, establishment-minded face of the um, administration, basically said, you know, we're, we're businessmen. We're not interested in history. 
Uh, you know, our friends today could be our enemies tomorrow, and our enemies of yesterday could be our friends tomorrow. We have no investment in these institutions. And, uh, you know, again, I think that's what takes me to point number three, which is there may not be a Trump doctrine. Uh, there are analytical guides or keys to understanding, however, uh, Trump's decision making or uh, this foreign policy moment. And I think chaos and unpredictability and therefore instability uh, actually have held up pretty well uh, as, as an analytical framework for, for understanding this. It was, it was Jeb Bush uh, in the 2016 primaries who called Trump the chaos president. Arguably, Jeb Bush was a much better commentator about 2016 than, than he was participant in it. Um, uh, but I, th I think he proved to be right. Uh, you know, there was a high-level uh, Asian uh, official who came to visit uh, early on uh, last year who said, you know, uh, one of his longtime friends said, well, wh why are you here? What do you specifically hope to get? And he said, you know, we're not here to get anything on this particular visit. Washington is now the epicenter of global instability in the world. And, you know, we all have to come here now all the time uh, because we recognize that it can change day to day and moment to moment. Uh, fourth very quick point, uh, because I think it's worth making. Uh, there is a narrative, and I understand it. It's human nature. I, I, you know, I, a group of people, I call them the, the reassurers. Uh, the, uh, you know, don't worry. Uh, ignore that man behind the Twitter uh, finger. Uh, it's ultimately empty rhetoric. It doesn't really matter. Uh, look at this list of uh, policy issues. It's not been that radical. NATO's still NATO. And in fact, because uh, he's not good at politics, uh, Congress and the Allies have actually backed him into a corner where he's spending more money uh, on Eastern Europe. And, you know, we've all heard versions of this reassurance. Uh, and uh, it's not that I disagree with any individual element of it, but I think uh, just like, you know, it's easy to spot a bubble in the stock market once it's burst, I think uh, it's easy to spot the flaws in this, which is to say any foreign policy analysis that tells you that the President of the United States doesn't matter to his own foreign policy is one that I'm going to approach very, very skeptically until uh, proven otherwise, <laughs> uh, just, just as an analytical matter. And then, you know, I, I think uh, both Jim and Hal made the point, which I very much agree with, that 2018, if anything, could be a bigger set of challenges for Trump than 2017. There was a lot of uh, kicking the can down the road, also disorganization and uh, sort of uncertainty, meaning that uh, certain things that Trump wanted to do, he, he simply was unable to do, uh, sometimes even for or organizational or bureaucratic reasons. Uh, and I also think that this is where the cumulative effect of all of those initial encounters and meetings uh, that Trump had with his international counterparts are now potentially going to come back to haunt him. The world has taken Donald Trump's measure and I think that uh, whether it is potential adversaries in, in Russia and China, whether it is uh, actors in the Middle East uh, who figured out uh, how much of their own agenda they can, can enact under uh, this new, much more permissive framework that uh, Trump has offered, you could see both people taking advantage of Trump and also uh, the political realities piling up on him and forcing him 
to make decisions. I think that the Jerusalem uh, decision might be uh, one that we're looking at a little bit more of in 2018, which is to say all the reporting suggested that Donald Trump actually was planning literally on the first minute of his administration on January 20th, 2017, to move the capital, uh, to, to announce that the United States was recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital and to announce that he was moving the U.S. Embassy there. That was something he, he planned to do. He was dissuaded from doing it at the very initial moments of the administration by a lot of heavy lifting uh, by the more sober-minded establishment types uh, uh, with whom he had partially surrounded himself. Uh, did it just go away? No, it didn't. In fact, it came back at the end of 2017, surprising many of those people, actually, who thought that they had won the fight initially, but where, whereas it actually turned out that Trump had merely uh, delayed and deferred something that he always intended to do all along uh, that was not a priority in any way. And he did so, I think, very significantly over the objections of Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, over the objections of Rex Tillerson, over the objections of those, including, I, I actually believe, uh, very likely, uh, like Jared Kushner, who were actually trying to deal with uh, the Middle East uh, talks. And so what does that suggest? It suggests you better not discount Donald Trump from your foreign policy thinking, since he's made it very clear that while he loves to have what he calls my generals, uh, that was a phrase he used in his Davos talk last week, that while he, he, he may brag about the, this team of experienced hands he has around him, uh, that in fact he's free to overrule them and has already done so many times in, in significant ways. So again, just if you're looking for guideposts and, and ways to understand uh, the foreign policy that can otherwise seem quite chaotic and incomprehensible, I think there are some important uh, things we've already learned from the first year. My final very quick point, uh, because I think it's important to say, I don't actually think uh, all of the world's chaos and instability is Donald Trump's fault. Uh, and not only that, but I think that this history of the last 25 years, as, as Jim pointed out, suggests that you really both parties have tried and not really fully come to terms yet with the limits of their approach to American power in the world after the end of the Cold War. And you know, this was a conversation that, that was beginning under President Obama. Obviously, uh, even if he and Donald Trump shared certain uh, insights, both about uh, you know, the reluctance of the American electorate to be engaged overseas, but also, I think, about the limits and the relative decline of American power outside the United States. Obviously, they reach very, very different conclusions about what you should do, uh, given that fact set. But you know, long after Donald Trump is gone, I think some of those realities will still be in force. And I, it, it strikes me that, in a way, Trump has proven to be such an enormous distraction uh, for understandable uh, reasons. He, he, he's, he's a significant player, as I've already pointed out. Uh, but the distracting nature of Trump means that it, it seems to me both the Democratic and the Republican parties are not very far along in coming to terms with uh, an approach that would work 
better or more coherently uh, than that which they are uh, both really critical of uh, in the Trump administration. And I think that that's, that's one of the other kind of hidden risk factors in all of this is that, uh, you know, rather than the United States sort of getting its act together and at least coming up with a coherent theory of the case for what will succeed or replace uh, this uh, American hyperpower, lone superpower framework of uh, the first decade or so after the end of the Cold War. I don't think uh, we're moving in any direction that anyone can discern uh, to make better sense of the world after Trump, uh, never mind what kind of a legacy he'll leave us with. Yank. Thanks. That, that's a good point. I, I thought 9-11 allowed terrorism to hijack U.S. foreign policy, and now Trump has hijacked U.S. foreign policy in that sense. So going last carries special burden. Uh, everyone has said all the smart things already, so what am I left with? Um, so let me just make three, three sort of brief points here uh, and before we pivot to conversation. Uh, and my approach to this was, was not to try to figure out uh, necessarily what the Trump doctrine is or isn't, um, but merely to sort of say what I feel about it a year into it after having written a lot about it, uh, and then to worry about a couple things, and then to point out a hopefully one bright shining bit. Uh, that we can take away uh, from all this. Uh, the first observation is that after trying to define the Trump doctrine, and uh, I admit I was one of the people who used capital, so I apologize for that, but uh, I tried for a while. It's difficult. It's impossible to put this guy in a box. Um, but I will describe Trump. And I think Trump is uh, a dangerous primacist. I think Trump has taken the worst aspects of previous grand strategies uh, and then added a healthy dose of um, Trump-flavored militarism, machismo, and questionable decision-making. Um, and I think, you know, this is an important thing to state a, a year after Trump takes over because I think some people, very mistakenly, thought that America first and Trump in general was the, like the peace candidate, was the don't mess with other people uh, person, the not nation-building, not intervene around the world willy-nilly person, don't nation... And that was just wrong. Uh, in fact, Trump has maintained the American commitment to primacy, uh, globe-straddling military commitments, dramatically expanding the war on terrorism, um, very quietly, uh, albeit, um, massively increasing arms sales around the world, busy pouring gas on fires all over the place with less concern than even the usual little concern for human rights and downstream consequences. Uh, and is pursuing an ever more bloated defense budget. I had just read today that he already wants a defense budget for next year, 7% bigger than the ridiculous one he wanted this year. Uh, he's, as a candidate, he said, let's get out of Iraq and Afghanistan, the nation-building business. As president, he signed blank check after blank check, permanent presence in Syria, permanent presence in Afghanistan. I haven't heard him talking about getting out of Iraq recently. Meanwhile, Niger, Somalia, Yemen, Libya were busy everywhere. Um, and beyond that, I'm worried that that's just the worst of before. The, the new stuff is that Trump and his advisors, and we can argue about who it is, uh, really, but are, as a team, much more comfortable than I am, anyway, with saber-rattling and making threats uh, with countries like Iran and North Korea. Um, I, you know, in the case of Iran, maybe you say, I think this reflects their general lack of faith and interest in diplomacy, and we can talk a little bit more about the sort of the deconstruction of, of the State Department. Um, 
But in the case of North Korea, I think it's, it's the lack of faith in diplomacy coupled with a, a dangerous overconfidence in the utility of threats and potentially the utility and feasibility of, of military force against a nuclear-armed country. Uh, and I think, um, you know, that's not just Trump's administration being more hawkish than his predecessors. The, to me, the, the, the scary sauce is that Trump himself seems to look at these situations, and I, and to Susan's point, I don't know what box to put his decision-making theories into. And that, that terrifies me, because it, at least if he was one thing or another, you could sort of try to predict. You would feel comfortable that, okay, scary, but I think I know where this is going. I don't feel that comfort level with Trump. I read the stuff about North Korea or Iran deal and stuff like this, and I worry on a fairly regular basis that I don't know what's coming next. And if I don't know what's coming next, and I'm sitting here in DC studying the tea leaves very carefully, allies and adversaries around the world surely have no idea of what's coming next. And I don't think that's a recipe for healthy and stable and peaceful international relations. Um, okay. Uh, I would point out here that my concerns are shared by a majority of the public. Uh, a recent Quinnipiac poll found that 69% of the public does not feel that Trump is level-headed. That is not a word that describes Trump. Uh, and just 39% of the public has confidence in him to handle an international crisis. Um, and, and Jim, your point about the 37% Buchanan base and the 37% Trump approval, we're right about that's the group of people who think Trump's aces. Um, okay, so I, I'm, I'm worried that there are not enough responsible adults in the room uh, to put the probability of Trump doing something crazy close enough to zero for, for my happiness. All right, so that's, that's the first thing. I think Trump is a danger. Trump is a dangerous primacist. Second, and Hal, you made this point, um, Trump, on the other hand, thankfully, Trump's foreign policy so far is less radical than some worried it might be, especially given how radical the ideas were in terms of their disjuncture from previous you know, decades of, of foreign policy thinking, good or bad. Um, now, you can choose two reasons, roughly, why this might be the case. Uh, the first is you might see this as a victory for responsible adult theory. We have very strong Secretary of Defense, very strong National Security Advisor, great uh, Chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and so on. We have a lot of smart players around Trump. And, you know, the reporting suggests that they have been very active in pushing back against some of Trump's zanier, crazier, loopier, dangerous ideas. Um, and I, I'm ready to give them some credit. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, um, I, Trump is not totally restrainable by people. He's shown that. Tweet after tweet shows you that it doesn't matter what he's just written, what's just been published under his name. Um, he's free to say whatever he wants at any moment. So, you know, how much do you trust that that's what's been slowing things down from getting radical? A different argument is that, uh, I think, you know, Hal focused most of his remarks here, is that Trump is fighting, in fact, you know, seven decades of inertia of U.S. foreign policy. We've, you know, U.S. foreign policy is deeply institutionalized, both here in the U.S. in terms of the Defense Department and the foreign policy establishment, the blob, and so on, ideas, uh, but also abroad in terms of our alliance commitments, treaties, and so on. And, and the reason the, the, the question matters is for our ability to predict what's likely to happen over the next three years if Trump only has one term, or the next seven years if he gets another term. Uh, and that is if you're expecting the responsible adults are doing most of the work, then that's fine as long as they are still in place and restraining him throughout his presidency. 
But if it's the other explanation, if it's the inertia that's been keeping him from getting more and more sort of extreme, um, then you can expect him to wear down that inertia and wear down the opposition over time as he has more time to, to do his thing. Um, so that's sort of the second point. Less radical than some feared, um, but it's not clear where we're headed, I don't think, yet. And now I'll end on a slightly positive note, or at least I think it's slightly positive. Um, I think many people worried that Trump's election meant that the public had abandoned its historical support for internationalism. Um, and, you know, as, as Kath mentioned, that we appeared to hit a kind of a low moment in terms of public interest in the traditional uh, global leadership role when Trump was elected. Um, you know, the polling data, as, as whiffy as sometimes polling data is, suggests that the public has, you know, whether it cares much about foreign policy on the average Sunday, um, has been fairly supportive of, you know, some robust international engagement uh, over many, many decades. But Trump, rising political polarization, growing economic uncertainty at home, you know, a lot of unsuccessful wars abroad since World War II, uh, made a lot of observers worry that maybe this time is, is something special. Maybe Trump's election means that America first, it's, it's America's first time to shine. And maybe what didn't work for Buchanan is now going to work for Trump, and maybe that's the trend we're on. So a, a review of the, the poll data from the first year of Trump is important. Are we getting more Trumpy in America firsty or, or not? And I'm, I'm happy to report that the answer is no, we are not. Uh, America first, the more America first elements of Trump's foreign policy are among the least popular elements of it. Um, so you know, just a few tidbits for you. 59% think the United States can solve the North Korea situation with diplomacy. Just 27% see a need for the use of force. Um, only 36% have confidence in Trump to handle North Korea, however. Uh, Two-thirds of Americans think the United States should stay in the Iran nuclear deal. Two-thirds oppose building a wall on the Mexican border. Two-thirds say that illegal immigrants should have a pathway to citizenship. Uh, just 33% approve of Trump's handling of foreign policy generally. 66% think Trump's uh, actions have damaged the U.S. reputation among uh, the rest of the world, and tw almost twice as many Americans think Trump has weakened the U.S. position in the world as think Trump's actions have strengthened it. So Trump has had a year as president, after a year and some as a candidate, to try to move the country in his direction. I think it's failing fairly spectacularly. I mean, this is the best chance he's going to get. His first year of a presidency is certainly his best chance to convince people of his way of thinking, and he has failed to do that so far. So I'm not sanguine about what Trump may decide to do in the next few years, but I'm relatively sanguine that the public won't like much of it. Okay, um, with that, if you're not too stunned to speak, let's have some questions. Um, just as a note, please wait to be called on. We have people with the microphones. Raise your hand, tell us where you're from. Uh, keep your questions short and in the form of a question, if you don't mind. Let's start right here. Hi, uh, I'm Tony from China Daily. You know, you all just talked about the word unpredictability. But to me, I mean, how you, if you are a foreign leader, how are you going to deal with Trump? Because this unpredictability seems to be unreliability, untrustworthiness. I mean, just to use China example, I mean, she, I'm from Trump's tweets or his meeting with Prince Xi in Beijing or Mar-a-Lago, and the relation has been quite good. Now, I mean, the national defense strategy, security strategy, and I mean, pointed China's adversary. 
I mean, uh, trade war, I mean, maybe tit for tat is coming. I mean, even you are leader of North Korea or South Korea, you're confused what his message on the Korean Peninsula is, whether he wants inter-Korean dialogue, whether he wants dialogue at all. So I don't know how you deal with Trump, whether you are ally or not ally. Thank you. You know, I think that's an excellent way of putting it, uh, you know, the confusion that, that the leaders are having about how to interpret the president and how that becomes its own uh, new calculus in the foreign policies of all other countries in the world. Uh, North Korea and South Korea, here's a little data point for this. I, I did one of my um, global political podcasts with uh, a couple of American experts on North Korea who are engaged in what they call track two uh, conversations with the North Koreans, which basically is unofficial dialogues, uh, including with senior government officials from North Korea at a time when there's not an official uh, uh, progress of negotiations underway. And what they normally don't talk about those things in a public setting, but because of the escalated rhetoric of President Trump, they did. And what they said was that even the North Korean officials uh, all throughout 2017, what were they asking them? They were saying, is he crazy? Uh, you know, what do we make of this rhetoric? Do we, you know, believe the Twitter feed or not? And I think that is, should be very alarming to people who um, are, are paying attention to this. It's not just a matter of what we as individual citizens uh, make of our, our Twitter feed when we look at it in the morning, but um, what other world leaders do. Yeah, I mean, I think there is more than one coping strategy, and I think you're seeing a variety playing out, often countries using multiple. The one I would point to as most impactful um, are actors who part of their hedge is to, again, discount the United States. In other words, to not make it the not wait for the United States to take action, but to move forward without it. You've seen this, uh, obviously, TPP-11 is a great example of that, where which is what induced, if you will, the president in this last week to say, well, maybe actually we want to be back at the table because Japan and others are moving forward without the US. Um, less um, convincingly, you have the Europeans moving forward on their peace and security approach, PESCO, which is a, an EU initiative uh, with France and Germany being um, kind of the movers on that. That's what allies might do. South Korea is another example, just to stay on the litany of sort of allies that are moving out without the US, where back to your point about confusion about what's going on in the Korean Peninsula, you have the South Koreans having agreed, kind of had their own sidebar agreement with the North Koreans currently in discussions going to be at the Olympics together, having delayed the US-South um, Korean um, uh, exercise, major exercises. There are two major exercises pushing them a little right. If you're the US, this is not good. Uh, you have a lot of folks moving out without you, um, and you're used to having a say in how they move out, and you can't necessarily control where all that goes. Now, if you're other countries, if you're China, if you're Russia, your hedging strategies might look a little different, and they might worry us in other ways. If you're Russia, your hedging strategy might be, or North Korea, a first mover advantage approach where you're not sure how unpredictable this guy is. So it's better to move first, um, and that definitely could lead to a major miscalculation in terms of um, some kind of military uh, competition. I certainly hope that does not happen with China. Uh, China to date has actually been relatively restrained 
I think, as a hedging strategy in the face of this unpredictability um, with the Trump administration. But that, again, we are one year in. We have yet to see where that plays out. So I'd just like to pick up on this. And, and I think Kath has laid out you know, a few of kind of the strategic uh, paths that people are pursuing to deal with Trump. And, and I think I would just add to that, if you're constructing a typology of behaviors that foreign leaders are taking to deal with uh, a president for whom there's some irreducible level of unpredictability, I think you could add four more uh, pieces of that. So, so one is simply, uh, this is a president who is extremely susceptible to manipulation because he has a phenomenal amount of narcissism. And, and so, and by the way, this is something both that allies and adversaries have figured out. Invite him to a military parade, feed him a really nice dinner, put on a good show, and you will have a great meeting with, with Donald Trump. Macron has figured this out. Unfortunately, Xi Jinping has figured it out uh, as well. A second strategy is uh, throw him a bone. So I think one of the things that some of our European allies figured out pretty early on is that if they could come up with another 10 special ops personnel to help uh, with counterterrorism or counter-ISIS, or they could you know, rejigger the way they count military spending to make it look like they were closer to 2%, that symbolism was important to this administration. Uh, a third uh, approach would be to try to compensate for unpredictability at the presidential level by strengthening your relationships with the sources of stability in American policy, whether those are the cabinet-level advisors you like, uh, the cabinet institutions, Department of Defense, Department of State, so on and so forth, the Congress, uh, the business community, you name it, in, in hopes that when Trump is tempted to do something like pull out of NAFTA, for instance, you'll have Republican senators leap into play and explain why this would be, be terrible. And then the fourth strategy is simply finding some friends uh, and looking for, for strength in numbers. And uh, Canada and Mexico have been joined at the hip in the NAFTA renegotiations because they understood that Trump's strategy was going to be to try to play them off one another. And, and, and so they've been very closely aligned. Uh, and, and have thought that they can find greater strength in resisting some of the proposals that they see as unreasonable. Now, there are limits to all these strategies, and we could talk about them, but I think you can observe at least these four and certainly some others in the ways that the foreign countries are interacting with our president today. What do we got? Let's, uh, oh, why don't we go up on the aisle right there? Dan Lieberman. Yes, the other day, uh, Trump was asked, uh, uh, can you talk to the Taliban? He said, no, 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 you cannot talk to the Taliban. And don't worry, we'll take care of them. Now, do you know what he meant by that? Do you have any clue what he meant by that? <laughs> you know, I think that was just yesterday, right? <laughs> Going to the news cycle. I was just going to say, I, you know, the other piece of that story is... Um, uh, you know, that that is not what his commanders and uh, senior civilians have been saying. In fact, they have been working very hard to have a dialogue or to reopen a dialogue with the Taliban. So back to the chaos point, it's hard to know whether it was flippant, whether he was signaling directly, no, I don't want you to do this. Um, so I, I have no idea why he said that. I think the second part probably falls in that general category of times he says semi-threatening things to get the news cycle to chase it, but that there's not something there. Obviously, Taliban has been undertaking deadly attacks in Afghanistan in the past week quite successfully. So I'm sure there will be some kind of um, counteroffensive, if you will, 
Um, but I don't know that that's what he meant. I, I think it was just rhetorical flourish, to put it politely. Um, but more concerning is the degree to which he actually is lined up with his subordinates and whether if he's just not lined up but didn't intend that, if it actually causes uh, other actors, whether it's the Taliban, Afghans, Pakistanis, others, to, Chinese, to sort of walk away from that construct because they don't think the U.S. is, is behind it when, in fact, that really was the policy. That's, that's a concern. Could have been something he heard on Fox News and was responding to. That's true. I don't know. Just very quickly, I would just make the point on Afghanistan that often it is held out as an example in the sort of the reassurers uh, catechism of why uh, it's going to be okay because even though he wanted to uh, blow up American policy, he hasn't done so. I would say it's actually an example in, in my view of the opposite, which is the uh, dysfunction and unsustainability of uh, the Trump foreign policy right now. He uh, very, very reluctantly, after months of lobbying on the part of H.R. Uh, McMaster, his national security advisor, made this decision to remain in Afghanistan without uh, very dramatically changing the, the policy one way or the other, I should say. Uh, he did so uh, not only after resisting doing so for months in, in ways that were widely reported, but in the speech that he then gave publicly announcing his decision, he basically said uh, very clearly, I don't really believe in this policy, uh, but they've persuaded me that we don't have much of an alternative right now but to remain there. Uh, and that suggests to me that A, it's not sustainable, B, he's not committed to it, and C, there's no one who actually thinks he's committed to it. So uh, at the first sign of trouble or, uh, what do you mean I have to actually now negotiate with the Taliban? I, I didn't say I would do that. Right. And I, I would just add on top of that that you know, as a general, I mean, it, to me, if, if this is part of the reassurer's narrative, that's terrifying. Because if Afghanistan is your success story, woof. But um, the, the other broader, broader issue, I think, this the fact that we get a question on a flip comment right. tells you, A, no one knows what Trump's going to do. No one is sure if Trump and his people are on the same page. Uh, it's not, you know, I worry about the national security strategy and the defense strategy, meaning very little, because Trump could change it all tomorrow. And then the last big picture thing I would take from it is that you know, words matter a lot in foreign policy. Yes, we have institutions. Yes, we have you know, massive bureaucracies in charge of doing all sorts of things. But, but Trump can change the game in one comment. And it's, that's why we're talking about Trump all day, is because he speaks and it changes the game. And this is just uh, about the 137th example of the president stepping on his own strategy, where the, the logic of the Afghanistan strategy is that we're going to put enough military pressure on these guys to drive them to the conference table. He's saying we're not going to do that. He's done the same thing on his North Korea strategy by picking a fight with the wrong Korea in the middle of uh, his pressure campaign against North Korea. He did the same thing with the drive for uh, Middle East peace by the Jerusalem decision. It goes on and on and on and on. Come down here in the front. Um, you've discussed a lot about uh, Donnie being the poster child for ADHD. How is he doing in filling positions for uh, foreign policy people, and how is that affecting things? Well, I mean, you know, all, they show the statistics. I mean, they've been doing this now for more than a year of sort of where he stands compared with his predecessors, and uh, he's not filling. I mean, I don't know how it looks at the Pentagon, but certainly at the State Department, I mean, it, this, you know, inability to move forward at the assistant secretary level, 
the inability to move forward on ambassadorial positions, which is just, just perplexing. I mean, it was, I think Victor Cha's name to go to South Korea was floated last summer. Uh, and, you know, he should have been there months ago. Uh, it's, it's crazy not to have someone uh, with that kind of skill level and talent representing the United States at a critical moment uh, in South Korea. And yet, it's not, it's not the only place where we're, where, where we're lacking representation. But uh, I think, you know, particularly on the diplomatic side, you know, there's, there's that failure. Partly, I think, because of the complete lack of respect for what goes on in these agencies. Uh, you know, why do you need people to staff these positions when you don't care about what these, what these agencies are doing? And in the particular case of the State Department, really compounded by the fact that you have a Secretary of State who is so enamored of the redesign that he can't actually think about what it is the people in the building are supposed to be doing. And I just, you know, I was so struck. I heard him speak at the Woodrow Wilson Center and then he did a Q&A after his speech. It was a speech on U.S.-European relations. Did a Q&A afterward with Jane Harmon, the head of the Wilson Center. And showed no passion at any point for anything until she asked him a question about what he very clearly, you know, you got to call it a redesign, not a reorg. He gets very upset if you call it a reorg. He sounded like somebody from, you know, the Boston Consulting Group coming in to a place he had no idea what they did uh, and incredibly excited about redesign, which to him is, you know, slashing as many positions as you possibly can uh, so that you can have a, a leaner State Department. But it, it, there's no real sense of that you don't get the sense that there's an appreciation for what people in the federal bureaucracy do, on the, and certainly in the, in the case of, of the State Department, that you would bother filling positions or that you would bother having ambassadors to places like South Korea. Let's, uh, let's go up over. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Herman Bauma. I'm the executive director of the National Association for Objectivity in Science. I must say I'm a little bit surprised that the Cato Institute has uh, put on such a one-sided panel discussion. I would have expected with five panelists there would have been <laughs> there would have been some diversity of viewpoints. And I'm just curious, why was it decided uh, by the Cato Institute not to have even one person to uh, defend what the president's been doing? Thank you. That's an excellent question. I, I, I welcome that question. Um, first, first off, um, we did not actually uh, correspond to ensure that we were all on the same page. Um, I did not ask anyone to speak to specific things. The second thing is I actually uh, did invite an awful lot of other people to come, um, none of whom would, would come. Uh, so we're, we're missing some obvious Trump supporter type people because they would not, they would not appear with us. So that's, that's what I can tell you there. Uh, in terms of objectivity, I think it's true that we all have points of view, uh, but I don't, you know, I, I hope we're not uh, ignoring uh, important elements of, of truth and, and beauty as we speak. And if we are, you know, let us know. So um, let's, let's go right back to this guy. Hello again. Um, Augustus Alzona. I've seen presidents come and go in this town since 1955. 
So my question for the panel, whoever cares to answer this, um, if you were the president and you wanted to not repeat the same foreign policy failures of the last two administrations, what would you do? Um, if you can put that in a tweet or you know, that would be. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I guess I'll jump in there. Uh, I hope never to be president, let me say that first. Um, but I think the key to my mind is somebody who's worked in defense for a very long time and has the, if you will, the academic background to have a good sense of the history um, An application is I would bring the, the I would first of all put a, put a primary emphasis on what the U.S. gets in its enlightened self-interest out of a significant role in the international arena. Um, I think that has done well for presidents in the United States. But I would marry that with a, with, um, a, a balanced approach on rhetoric and action. And in particular, I want to emphasize that that balanced approach means that the military is not the only or even primary and almost never the first instrument that we turn to. So I would look to reinvigorate, build up, and just invigorate because some of the tools have never existed with regard to, for instance, cyber and other areas. Um, our capability to work agilely across those tools of power to pull in the private sector effectively, to pull in the NGO community effectively, and find areas where the United States can uh, make its citizens' lives more prosperous and more safe by uh, taking on issues as far from our shores as we can. Well, I just, I mean, especially given the previous question, I mean, try to do this from a Cato perspective, uh, if, and recognizing I've do not represent in any way. But you might uh, the run Cato for president. Institute, but yeah, right. I might run for president. <laughs> I mean, I mean, no, yeah, no. I'm just saying that that you know. I mean, I think one thing that we've really learned, um, we should have learned uh, over the past 25 plus years, uh, is what George W. Bush said in 2000. I mean, we should have some amount of humility uh, about our ability to remake other places. And you know, time and again since the end of the Cold War, we have thought that we could turn other countries into what they want, uh, what we wanted them to be. Um, you know, we did it early on with Russia with, you know, massive uh, economic assistance, thinking that we were going to, uh, and advice on how to build democracy, that we were going to make them a market democracy. We certainly did it, uh, and, uh, certainly have done it uh, to some extent over previous administrations with respect to Iraq and Afghanistan. And I have to say, if there's one thing I would have thought about a Trump administration coming in, given what he had said on the campaign trail, I would have thought that he would have, in fact, taken that lesson to heart and not um, thought that it was the business of the United States to go in uh, to other places and try to remake them. And that may be what he feels, but he's certainly as interventionist uh, as, uh, in, in, with respect to the military, as Trevor was saying before, you know, he's as much a military interventionist as we've seen, if not more so, and really, you know, relying on the threat of force or, in fact, the use of force to accomplish American objectives, military objectives, without any of the rest. So um, I would say uh, 
that despite what I would argue are some of the lessons we should have learned over the past 25 years, I think we're getting, uh, we're getting the worst of all, of all worlds right now, which is um, much heavier reliance on the military with no strategy as to then what it is, we're, what kind of mess we're creating in various places and what we'll leave behind. I would just make a quick final point on that, which is it's very hard for a country that is as fractured and divided uh, as ours is right now to come up with a coherent sense of international purpose and uh, presence in the world or, or lack thereof. And I think that that's, that's what I meant to say, that you know, this isn't a debate created by Donald Trump and it will, it will outlast him uh, long after he's president. And this goes perhaps to the previous comment as well. Um, you know, we have succeeded in one respect, I, I think, and it's not necessarily a good thing, which is in repoliticizing American foreign policy. Uh, and arguably, it is now, uh, you know, the subject of a heated partisan uh, conflict, or at least all foreign policy is viewed through our deeply divided uh, domestic political lens. So that, therefore, you know, trying to understand where Trump has succeeded or not, even by his own terms, is seen as, uh, well, either you're pro him or you're against him. Uh, and it might not break down in neat um, party lines in the sense that much of the Republican foreign policy establishment uh, has been very critical of Trump as well as much of the Democratic establishment. So you can find uh, you know, a certain bipartisan agreement on it. But, but really, basically, to me, it's part of the broader trend of increased partisanship and uh, division in American society. We don't have consensus about where we're going as a country, so it makes it very hard, I think, for us to come up with a, a clear sense of national purpose with our international uh, affairs as well. Yeah, well said, well said. Um, how about this gentleman here? Yeah. Sorry. Thank you, I'm Andreas Ross with the German newspaper of Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. Uh, when you talk to people on the axis of adults, as it's often put, um, they tend to say the unpredictability of the president is giving us, is opening some spaces for us, for example, in the Korea crisis. Uh, so since nobody on the panel is advocating this, uh, let me ask you whether you think there is some truth to that. I think it is possible that you can gain tactical advantages from unpredictability. And previous American presidents have thought this as well. But, but I, I tend to think that those gains are fairly marginal. Um, and, and I'll talk, and, and actually potentially counterproductive. And with respect to North Korea, the issue is that it, it's not enough simply to discombobulate the North Koreans you've got to put together a pretty carefully tailored and calibrated strategy that blends pressure with inducement or pressure and negotiation. And I think when you get to a certain point of unpredictability, which this administration passed a long time ago, it's hard to maintain any type of calibrated approach. And so ultimately, you know, we've got to be able to coherently describe what our position is and other people have to be able to understand that. And I don't know that's where we are today. The second point is that um, Trump clearly feels like he can get more out of negotiations by ramping up the pressure dramatically with, with seemingly outrageous statements uh, and then taking something from, from the middle ground. But, but the danger there is that there is such a thing as making it politically impossible for people to give you what you want. Uh, and I would point to the NAFTA renegotiations right here. 
There are lots of people in Canada, the United States, and Mexico who would agree with the premise that NAFTA might be renegotiated. I mean, the, the thing was negotiated 25 years ago. The world and the economy has changed quite a great deal since then. But, but I think that the Mexican government has concluded that it has no political space for give on the issues that the Trump administration cares most about because the president has taken such an abrasive and frankly insulting approach to Mexico over the past two and a half years. Uh, and, and so the, the way I read the tea leaves is that this Mexican government is terrified of moving too far in the negotiations prior to Mexico's presidential election uh, midway through this year for fear of empowering sort of the Mexican equivalent of Donald Trump, so sort of a nationalist backlash within Mexico. And I think you're seeing that dynamic playing out in other instances as well. Let's, let's go back to the woman in the white uh, blazer. Thank you very much. My name is Robin Williams. I'm from Crozier, Virginia. Y'all speak approvingly of seven decades of inertia in U.S. foreign policy. And what that means is that some problems remain carefully avoided and unresolved. <clears throat> But Trump is willing to shake things up. For instance, I'm 67 years old, and I have heard about the crisis in the Middle East my entire life. Maybe Trump's brave decision to move the embassy to Jerusalem and to cut aid to the Palestinians will lead to a more realistic approach on the part of the Palestinians uh, to negotiate a settlement. What, what do you all think of that? So I, I would I'd come back to the point that Hal just raised about the political space that these other actors have to pursue discussions in a world in which they've been you know, sort of backed into a corner or they've been disrespected. Of I mean, so decades of turmoil in the Middle East. I mean, uh, it gets back to Kathleen's earlier point about the world, you know, doesn't necessarily revolve around us. Uh, you know, you could imagine the United States doing all sorts of different things over the past uh, 50, 60 years, and on certain problems, the Middle East would look the same way it does now, right? I mean, the, the fact that there is not peace between Israelis and Palestinians um, is largely a function of the situation that exists between Israeli and Palestinians, re regardless of what any external actors, including the United States, does. And so um, the question is, why, in this particular instance, why move, or why announce that you're going to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and uh, say that you're going to move your embassy there if if, it's for the, if you have a reasonable uh, belief that it in some way would enable you to move forward on a negotiation where others have failed previously, that would be one thing. If it's purely to satisfy a certain domestic constituency, which I would argue it is, um, then it's, it's, it, it may well satisfy that domestic constituency, but it's not going to have a desired result on the foreign policy side. And in the case of the Palestinians, the position that you put their leadership in is it, it makes it very hard for them 
to pursue any, any kind of uh, serious negotiation because you've done something uh, that they have uh, you know, already announced ahead of time is completely anathema to them. So uh, I think in that particular case, that's you know, the way I would look at that. That you know, issue. just two quick points. I mean, I think you're, you're right to raise this as an example of, like, where is fresh thinking, you know, not, not a benefit to us. I think in this particular case, it's actually, it, this was an idea that, that his predecessors have also right. supported. They would object to this really not on philosophic grounds, is not where they disagree with Donald Trump, but actually on tactical grounds. They, they would say that as not only not being a good deal maker, but simply... Uh, you know, not being a smart deal maker in this particular case, the reason that previous presidents supported moving uh, the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem but held off doing so and issued waivers uh, for doing so was that they believed this was a negotiating chip uh, that they uh, wouldn't trade away for nothing. And so the critique of Trump on this is largely uh, not that anyone disagrees on the substance of it, but that it was just poor tactical... Um, uh, thing and then I just think to your question of like well a year from now you know is it possible are we just being skeptical Washington insiders and you know could we have a deal a year from now I, I think the Jerusalem issue is probably not going to be the reason that we don't have a, a year from now the the thing that that people who are much smarter about this than, than I am have said to me that I find compelling is that we're not going to have a deal a year from now uh, not because of Donald Trump but because there's no one to make peace uh, and both uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and uh, Abu Mazen Mahmoud Abbas are, are not in a political position in their own societies, in their own countries, uh, to be able to make uh, such an enormous agreement. I find that to be a very compelling argument. And I think that, you know, again, I, I totally understand why it might seem not uh, clear cut or straightforward why Trump is being criticized in this Jerusalem thing. But to me, that's almost a tactical uh, discussion. I was just going to add, I, I certainly would not describe the last 70 years as a period of inertia in U.S. foreign policy at all. I think it's a period that's been guided in general terms by a grand strategy or a grand vision that was very much born of the experiences in World War I and World War II that have to do with a, a, an enlightened self-interest of the United States in being engaged in the world. The Jerusalem decision is neither here nor there with regard to that, uh, but I certainly wouldn't describe that as inertia. Now, looking forward, we can't have the same strategy going backwards, just as we haven't in each administration. I think we need that same overarching vision, but a sense of what that means in the current world order. Could this um, decision end up being a good one? I don't personally think it's going to turn out that way for many of the reasons that were laid out, but I certainly don't object to it for this fact that it shook things up or that it wasn't an initiative. I expect any president to have initiatives and big ideas, but I expect them to be tied to a strategy that I can follow in some logical way. And I don't think that's been laid out in this particular case, how this leads to Middle East peace, I do not see. And I'll just end by saying I certainly don't approve of the last 70 years of U.S. foreign policy, especially the closer to now we get, the less I like it. Um, I did, in fact, welcome Trump's candidacy as an effort uh, to shake things up. I, I approved of his um, total disregard for traditional GOP uh, you know, you know, orthodoxy. Um, but once president, the job is not to appreciate uh, new debate, but it's actually to judge the quality of his foreign policy. And uh, I think that's uh, what we've started to, to discuss uh, here today. We continue the discussion uh, in 10 minutes at 3.40 uh, or six minutes, uh, whatever the case may be. Uh, upstairs, there are three conference rooms, one, two, three. Uh, we'll start right around 3.40. So thank you very much for joining us. <laughs>